Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 is our text. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Dear congregation, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was visiting uh, with Connie DeHaan over at the atrium, and Connie proceeded to tell me about how in a week, the week before, she had received a visit from uh, another member of our congregation, Chelsea Vandenbosch, uh, and her three girls, Reese, Jade, and Lane. I told, asked Chelsea if I had permission to share this story. She said, yes, absolutely. Now I notice she's maybe not here today, so hopefully I didn't scare her. Uh, sorry, Chelsea. Uh, or maybe she knew she was going to be gone and it was easy for her either way. Uh, uh, Connie spoke glowingly of this visit she had uh, from Chelsea and her, her three girls, and, and Connie proceeded to show me the cards uh, that Chelsea's girls had made for her, cards which told Connie of God's love for her, cards which reminded Connie of how God was with her, and the whole experience for me, uh, sitting there listening to Connie tell me this, the whole experience was a delight. Uh, truly, there is, I'm finding out, nothing more delightful for a pastor uh, than to hear the members of his church uh, taking care of one another and blessing one another, and that's certainly what was happening in this instance. Now, let me ask, uh, what were Chelsea and her girls doing as they visited Connie and brought cards to Connie? Uh, what were they doing? Well, I think we could say that they were doing the very thing Paul calls us to do here in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. They were walking in love. The two verses before us this morning bring to a close uh, a section of this letter. You wouldn't know that by what the translators have chosen to do. The translators have inserted a chapter division before verse 1. That inclines us to take these verses with what comes after rather than with what comes before. But it's best to take these verses with what comes before. Uh, and I say that because the first word of our text is therefore. And the word therefore uh, certainly points us back. It tells us that Paul here is essentially drawing a conclusion from what he has said previously. I might add, you also wouldn't know this by your pastor's preaching schedule because we took three months off between our study of Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. A better pastor might have wrapped up Paul's argument before stepping away for a season. I didn't do that. I hope you forgive me. Anyway, the best way to understand these verses is as bringing to a conclusion the argument which Paul began in chapter 4, verse 25, or I should say the teaching 
which Paul began in chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, And if I might summarize these verses for us, if I might help you understand what's going on in these verses, I would do so this way. The best way to understand what's going on in these verses is to recognize in them a, a summary application set upon a gospel foundation, followed by a clarifying speculation an intensifying exemplification and an incentivizing revelation. You got all that? No, you don't. All right. Well, let's work our way through it. I think you'll get it, all right? One at a time. A summary application. That's what this passage begins with, a summary application. And the summary application is this. Be imitators of God. With these words, Paul is gathering together and summarizing everything he's been calling us to since chapter 4, verse 25. Since then, he's called us to put away falsehood and speak the truth. He's called us to be angry and not to sin. He's called us to, to not steal, but to do honest work with our own hands so that we might share with those in need. He's called us to put away corrupting talk and to speak what is good for building up. He's called us to not grieve the Holy Spirit, and then finally he's called us to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving towards each other, even as God has been this way toward us. And now at the beginning of chapter five, he brings it all together. He sums it all up. He tells us what, what ultimately he's calling us to be, and that's imitators of God. All right, this is a summary application of what Paul's been saying. Be imitators of God. Now, this is, this is nothing new. This is nothing we haven't seen before. In the Old Testament, God says to his people, be holy as I am holy. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus says, be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. All right, so this, this whole idea of imitating God, it's, it's nothing new. We've seen it before in Scripture. And Paul here is going back to this application when he says, be imitators of God. Now, there is, I think, an application we can draw just from this summary application of Paul. And it's simply this, to imitate God, we need to know God, right? To imitate God, we need to know what God is like, We need to know how God thinks, as it were. We need to know how God operates and relates to this world. When an actor is tasked with portraying a historical figure, that actor or actress will take it upon themselves to read about that figure and to learn everything they can about that figure because it's only by doing so that the actor or actress is able to portray that figure well. And so it is with us. When Paul says be imitators of God, the implication is, hey, we need, to, we need to know God. We need to spend time with God. We need to learn about God because it's only as we do that that we'll be able to imitate God. So we have a summary application. Be imitators of God. And we notice next that this summary application is placed upon a gospel foundation. The summary application is placed on a gospel foundation. And the gospel foundation is that we are God's beloved 
children. Listen again to what Paul says. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now understand, we're getting here into the crux of the gospel. Because by nature, we are, we are not God's beloved children. By nature, we are children of God's wrath. Paul has told us that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There he told us that by nature, because of our sin and disobedience, we are children of God's wrath. God's wrath is on us. We live our lives under its weight by nature. But the good news of the gospel is what? It's that we who are by nature children of wrath become God's beloved children in Christ. John 1.12 sets this forth plainly. But to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, being a child of God is not your birthright. Being a child of God is your right in and through Christ. So if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, if you're here this morning and you have not given your life to Jesus by faith, then you sit here under God's wrath. Okay, that's the teaching of Scripture. If you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, then you are not a child of God. You are a child of God's wrath. God is not for you. God is against you. And should you die in this state, you will find that out in a very tragic way. Your soul will be cast in hell forever. But the good news, right? The good news is that if you recognize this about yourself. And you, you confess your sins to God and you give your life to Christ. This very moment, this very moment, you will go from being a child of wrath to a beloved child of God. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be, to be justified by faith alone. It means you are a hell-deserving sinner, but God accepts you as his child simply by faith in Christ alone. This is the foundation of the application. This is the reason Paul gives us to be imitators of God. We're to be imitators of God because in Christ we're children of God. We're not to be imitators of God so that we might become children of God if God deems our imitation worthy of his acceptance. No, we're to be imitators of God because we're children of God by grace through faith in Christ. One night this past week we were having burgers for dinner. The burgers were on the grill and then the burgers were on a plate and the burgers were set on the table with all the fixings. We sat down, it was only a couple of us, I think it was Aaron and Adri and Hudson and myself, and uh, the boys read football, and truthfully, now that I say that, I have no idea where Case was. We might have forgot one at dinner time. Um, 
But uh, the, the, the burgers are on the table with all the fixings, and we sit down and we pray, and, and I grab a burger and I put it on my plate. And uh, Hudson proceeds to grab a burger and put it on his plate, and then I grab a slice of cheese and I put it on my burger, and Hudson grabs a, sli- grabs a slice of cheese and puts it on his burger, and then I, I take the ketchup and I put it on the burger and the cheese, and I set the ketchup down, and he picks up the ketchup and he puts it on the burger and cheese. Then I grab a little bit of lettuce and I put it on my burger, and he s- looks at the lettuce and says, he didn't say no, but... I noticed he didn't, he didn't follow me there, but, but what was he doing up until that point? He was, he was, he was imitating me, right? He's two years old. He, he doesn't know how to make a burger, but he presumes dad knows how to make a burger, and so he's, he's imitating me. That's what children do. And Paul is saying the same thing here. We're to be imitators of God. Why? Because we're the beloved children of God. And imitation is what children do. The children of God realize quite quickly that they really don't know how to live in this sin-cursed and broken world, but their heavenly Father does. And if they do what He does, things tend to go okay. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So a summary application placed on a gospel foundation that is clarified with a specification. Clarified with a specification. Paul has called us to be imitators of God, and that's all fine and well, but the question could be asked by those who think deeply about it, how in the world are we supposed to imitate God? I mean, he's God, and we are not. There's things about God that I can't imitate, right? For instance, for instance, God is self-existent. That means God depends on nothing or no one for his existence. You and I are not self-existent. We depend on a lot of things for our existence, right? We can't go a minute without oxygen. Some of us can't go very long without food, myself included, right? We need sleep. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for our parents. We are dependent creatures. In the same way, God, he is unchanging. We are are constantly changing. God is omnipotent. We are weak. God is omniscient. We don't really know anything when you get down to it. God is omnipresent. And contrary to what your kids think, you can only be in one place at one time, right? There is much of God's character and being that we can't imitate. There is much of God's character and being that belongs to him and him alone. And so Paul, he he clarifies what he means when he says be imitators of God by providing us with a specific example or a specification. What is it? It's this, and walk in love. It's true, there's much about God which you and I can't imitate. There's much about God which belongs to him and him alone. But love, love is not one of those things. No, love is an aspect of God's character and being that we can imitate. Boys and girls, you start Sunday school and catechism today. You want to throw your Sunday school and catechism teachers for a loop on the first day. Ask them to explain to you the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. That's what we're talking about right now. We're not going to get any further into that. We'll leave that to Sunday school teachers. We don't want to get sidetracked. 
all right? But Paul's point is clear here. There is a summary application. Be imitators of God. It's set on a gospel foundation as dearly loved children to which he adds a clarifying specification and walk in love. All right, it's by walking in love that we imitate God as his dearly loved children. And Paul has told us about God's love already in this letter. He told us that it was in love that God predestined us for adoption as sons before the foundation of the world. He told us that it was because of the great love with which he loved us that he made us alive with Christ by grace through faith. Okay, he's told us of God's love and now he says be imitators of God and walk in love. What does it look like to walk in love? Well, Paul's been telling us something of what it looks like since verse 25 of the previous chapter, right? It looks like putting away falsehood and speaking truth. It looks like being angry without sinning. It looks like working for yourself rather than stealing and so on and so forth. Paul will tell us something of what love looks like for husbands at the end of chapter five, right? There he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think he gives a pretty exhaustive description of what it looks like to walk in love in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Pretty clear road set before us there, isn't there, of what it looks like and of what it means to to walk in love. That's what we're called to do. That's uh, That's how we're called to walk as Christians who've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in Christ. So a summary application, be imitators of God, set on a gospel foundation as beloved children, followed by a clarifying specification and walk in love, and also an intensifying exemplification. An intensifying exemplification. What is that intensifying exemplification? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see what Paul does here. He sets forth Christ's love for us as the pattern and as the example of the love which we are to walk in. And make no mistake, this is an intensification of the command to walk in love. Here Paul makes it plain that the love we are to walk in is is a love that is costly to us and a blessing to others. The love we are to walk in is a love that is costly to us and a blessing to others. He says we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and then he tells us how Christ loved us. He loved us by giving himself up for us. That of course is a reference to Christ's death on the cross. On the cross, Christ gave himself up for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. But it was, it was a costly love. 
Christ gave up himself. It cost him his life. Christ's love is also, is also a love that is beneficial for others. Beneficial for us. You, you should notice how Paul changes his pronouns here. If you look at the verses before uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul's been talking to the Ephesians. He's been using the word you, right, in reference to the Ephesians. But now he inserts himself into the equation and he uses the word us. He says Christ loved us and Christ gave himself up for us. Paul is is emphasizing the fact that Christ's love is beneficial for others. It's beneficial for us. But this morning Paul is saying, I want you guys to walk in love like that. I want you guys to walk in love like Christ. I want you guys to walk in love in a way that it costs you something. I want you to walk in love in a way that involves the giving of yourself in some way so that someone else might benefit. It probably shouldn't be lost on us what Paul says immediately before our text at the very end of chapter four. Verse 32, he says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And it's immediately following that instruction that Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's almost, it's almost as if forgiveness is what is on Paul's mind when he tells us to walk in this costly, sacrificial love. Let me ask, if you ever had to forgive somebody, if you say no, you're lying. If you ever had to forgive somebody, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the person who cut you off on the highway, I'm talking about someone who really, truly, deeply hurts you. Have you ever had to forgive somebody? If you have, or if you have to even now, then you know, don't you, that in some strange way that is hard for me to explain, doing so costs you something. There is a part of you, your pride, I suppose, that that, that truly must suffer and die, as it were, to forgive somebody and to love somebody that way. Forgiveness is hard, so hard. That's why people have such a hard time with it. But that's the kind of love Paul is calling us to walk in here. He's calling us to walk in a sacrificial, costly love which resembles the love which Christ showed us when he died on the cross for our sins. One practical way is is through forgiveness. There are other ways, of course. And we should acknowledge and we should recognize that the cost and sacrifice won't be to the same degree every single time. But this is the kind of love we're to walk in. A love which is costly to us and which is a blessing and a benefit to others. A love which causes people to say he or she gave up their time, he or she gave up their talent, he or she gave up their treasure, he or she gave up their energy, he or she gave up their hurt, their grudge, their pride, their self for me. We're to love people that way. He gave himself up. For me, she gave herself up. For me. 
So that, that, that's the intensifying exemplification. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then finally, at the end of all of this, is what we'll call a, an incentivizing revelation. An incentivizing revelation. Notice what Paul says about Christ's giving himself up for us on the cross. He says it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Boys and girls, the word fragrant refers to something that smells pleasant. In our house, we're a sucker for autumn-smelling candles. They make us happy. And so Labor Day passes and Adri pulls out the autumn-scented candles and they've been burning every day in her house this past week and lovely. I love it too, all right? That's a, that's a fragrance. The smell is, 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 is a, it's a fragrance. It smells pleasant. And when Paul uses this word here in reference to Christ's sacrifice, he's, he's picking up on language from the Old Testament. In Leviticus 1.9, we read about the burnt offering the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In Leviticus 3.5, we read the same thing about the peace offering. In Leviticus 2.2, about the meal offering. In Leviticus 4.1, regarding the sin offering, these things too are said to be a pleasing aroma, a fragrance to the Lord. And now here in Ephesians 5, 2, Paul says the same thing about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It was, like those sacrifices of old, a fragrance, a pleasing aroma to God. Now this is, this is simply the Bible's way of, of saying that God was pleased with the sacrifice, but this is interesting to think about, just, just as, as it relates to Christ for, for just a moment because what, what, what happened on the cross? Well, on the cross, God poured out his wrath for our sins upon Jesus. On the cross, God directed all the just and holy and righteous anger that our sins deserved onto his son. And yet, even as God did that, Paul tells us here, even as God poured out his wrath on his son, Paul tells us here, God was at the same time pleased with his son. He was at the same time delighted in his son. His son's sacrifice was a, was a fragrance, a pleasing aroma to him. Interestingly enough, this, this same language is picked up by the apostle Paul in reference to another sacrifice not the sacrifice of Jesus, but the sacrifice of Jesus' people in Philippi. Listen to what Paul writes, Philippians 4, verse 18. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So there Paul is speaking, it seems, about a, a financial gift that he received from the Christians in Philippi. And he says that this sacrificial financial gift, like the sacrifices in Leviticus, like the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, was, was a fragrant offering 
acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, when we start putting all of these things together, what do we discover? Well, what we discover is that when God's people walk in sacrificial, costly love towards others, their Father in heaven is pleased. Their Father in heaven is pleased. Not not pleased in a works righteousness way, but pleased in in a parent child way. One of my children already got a letter sent home with them by their teacher. Two weeks in, letter comes from the teacher. We're terrified, right? We open the letter, and in this letter, the teacher is speaking glowingly of, of our son. She's just saying he's kind and he's respectful and eager to help others, and just she was delighted to be his teacher this year. Now, I assure you, that letter had no bearing on my relationship with my son. My son is my son, and my love for him was not contingent on what that letter from his teacher said. But I sure was pleased with him when I read that letter. That letter was, to me, something of a a, a pleasing aroma in my relationship with my son. And so it is when God's beloved children walk in costly, sacrificial, Christ-like love. Our Father in heaven is pleased. He's pleased. Eric Little, the, 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 the British Olympian who refused to run the 100-meter dash on Sunday a century ago, once said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Well, in much the same way, God's children ought to say, when I walk in love, I feel God's pleasure. Because Paul says here, God, God is pleased when his children walk in love. I heard a second story recently. I've actually had a number I could have drawn from, but I gotta save some of your stories for other times if you'll let me use them. I heard a second story recently of someone from our congregation walking in love. Uh, Our brother, Mike Gearlings, uh, has on two occasions now uh, taken a young man from our congregation, Hunter Vincent, uh, up to his farm in Buckley. I understand Hunter helped Mike count hay bales. I understand Hunter helped Mike drive the John Deere Gator. Heard you put a lot of miles on it, didn't you, Hunter? Yes, sir. I would have done the same thing. Driving those things is a good time. But I hear this, right? Mike, pouring into a young man from our congregation, picking him up, letting him ride along for the day, enjoying God's creation, encouraging him, speaking, speaking God's word into his life, right? A lovely story. Wonderful story. Now, now, Let's be clear, I don't tell you these stories to put Chelsea or Mike up on a pedestal. I tell you these stories so that you know at least something of what it looks like to walk in love. It might be hard for sinners like us to do this, but it's, it's, it's not complicated. It's not abstract. It's not for Christians who are unlike us. No, it's for people who are just like us. 
Young mothers like Chelsea and, ooh, I'm setting myself up by saying that, Mike. And people like Mike. <laughs> and old fathers like Mike, that didn't sound good. People like Chelsea and like Mike, right? And everyone in between. More than that, as we, as we, as we tell these stories, we see, don't we? We see there is, there is beauty in walking in love. The congregation whose members truly walk in love, that congregation tells great, beautiful stories to the world. Stories which ultimately testify to the grace of God and the gospel and the great love of Jesus Christ for his own people. Do you get it, beloved? When Paul says walk in love, I want you to see he's not offering us some second-rate way of life. He's offering us the supreme way of life, the beautiful way of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You leave here shortly, the rubber meets the road. God's will for your life, Christian, is very, very clear today. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the way in which your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, you have, you have shown us our path again this morning. You have shown us how we are to walk as your beloved children redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the many in this church who are already walking in love. Help all of us to walk in love even more than we already are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.